Hello, beautiful humans, and welcome to the Bitcoin Stoa for our first official episode of Hash Power. Uh, Hash Power is a long-form show where we invite mining companies to tell their stories and to talk about everything related to Bitcoin mining. And today I'm honored to welcome back Bob Burnett, who's the CEO of Barefoot Mining. Bob, welcome back and thanks for being here. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks, Nick. So for those who want a, a deeper dive uh, intro to Bob and his history, you can check out our first conversation that Bob and I had not long ago at the Stoa. But today is going to be about everything related to mining. So current Moscow time is 1680 at 707.135. And if anyone's curious about what Mo Moscow time is, it's how many sats you can buy for a US dollar and the current block being mined. And I've realized that that is actually a, uh, a more aligned timestamp than stating date and time because that can be different in so many time zones. So um, <laughs> as a reminder, the Bitcoin Stow is a community funded platform. So if you enjoy listening, you can support the project by sending some sats to the QR code on our homepage at bitcoinstow.com. You can also stream sats using the Breeze app, which has a really badass podcast feature. So with that said, let's dive in and maybe just as a little refresher, uh, if you can give the Coles notes on sort of how barefoot mining came to be initially, and maybe uh, give us a little bit of insight as to, you know, what, what's the barefoot mission? What, is, what mining niche are you hoping to nest within? And sort of what's the long-term vision uh, for barefoot mining for like the next 10 years? Okay, great. Great. Well, the, the genesis of Barefoot was a phone call. And um, my, my, my background is, we'll talk about my backgrounds in, in personal computer industry. So I think we touched on more of it in the last conversation. But I spend most of my career designing computers. And in 2017, four and a half years ago or so, I got a phone call middle of the night, not late, late one evening. And, and it was from somebody who was an acquaintance of mine who said, hey, Bob, can you uh, build me some Ethereum mining machines. I, I, uh, I didn't understand enough at that point in time to really even understand why what he was asking me was um, uh, something unusual that at that point in time, finding a high quality Ethereum GPU rig was difficult. But given my background, and a little bit of research, I, I ended up saying, yes, I can do that for you. And he said, great. And he ordered several hundred of them. And, and so out of that sprung a company. And what I soon found was that that company is actually called Divi Systems. It still exists today. Sister to Barefoot Mining. Sister to Barefoot Mining. And, and what I found then, though, is I started asking other people like, hey, would, would you like to buy one too? A large number of people said yes but with the caveat that only if I could host for them. And so that took us down that path and, 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 and out of that birthed barefoot mining. And then from there, barefoot mining evolved to not just providing these services for other people, but doing it ourselves. And, and so I kind of backed into it uh, and as I said, I start, I know this is a Bitcoin centric show and I, I promise you guys, I am a Bitcoin centric person, but I started as many others did in uh, other areas. And uh, as I delved deeper, I started to learn more about cryptocurrency. I learned what Ethereum was. I learned what Bitcoin was. Saw my heart was a lot more in Bitcoin than it was in Ethereum. So even though those Ethereum operations still exist today, they exist to mine Ethereum uh, to convert it to Bitcoin. 
And so it's just another Bitcoin it's mine. another revenue stream. Some people may mow lawns to make money to buy Bitcoin. Yeah, I have some operations that mine Ethereum. Now we also mine Bitcoin as well, and we provide these hosting services. But that profit essentially all ending up into uh, treasury uh, in our in our corporate treasury and in Bitcoin. Amazing! It's funny how people refer to fiat mining. It's like you mine Ethereum as a way of mining fiat to purchase Bitcoin. It's like a you know yes. people like their day jobs are fiat. They call it fiat mining. It's so funny yes. how the terminology seems to gravitate towards these things in the Bitcoin Twitter space. It's very cool. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, you know, I, I and and I think it it's very true. I just uh, I'm, I'm getting off topic a little bit from where you were, but I I just literally got home um, to to do this podcast with you today uh, because I I help teach at Florida Gulf Coast University in uh, the School of Business there. And I was explaining some concepts just today to some of the students I was working with about money. And I said, you know, I, I use this very example. I said, hey, if you, if you mow my lawn for $20 and um, you keep it in dollars for 10 years, you've lost phenomenal purchasing power, right? I can guarantee you, you will have lost that. If you invest it, which means you're taking risk, um, you're probably going to do better, but you're not certain. You may have nothing, right? You have, to, you have to introduce the possibility of that $20 turning to zero in order to either maintain or increase its purchasing power. But I said, if I, if I take that $20 and I put it into Bitcoin, I have absolute certainty that 20 years from now, it is purchasing power, its purchasing power will have increased. And I think that's the power. And it changes us from an investment mentality to a saving mentality. Yes. And that's really important. And I won't go further, but- No, that's but important to, to say. Your- Very important. And I think people have c- conflated uh, investing as the only way to save or have been essentially put in this corner by financial services and how crazy those have gotten. Like the, the financialization of saving because there's no outlet for saving in conventional uh, like legacy finance- I hear that all the time. People are like, if I want to keep my purchasing power, I have to invest. And they don't realize that investing is actually, like you said, it carries risk and savings. We should, it's not too much to ask to have a, a tool for saving that is risk-free. And I think yeah. that is a very important point to bring up. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's crucial. And, you know, uh, I'll, I'll save us the, the rabbit hole maybe for another day, but uh, very quickly, if, if you have a form of money that does not retain its value, then that value loss is theft. And what you're stealing is people's time. So I cut somebody's lawn for $20. I should have the right to hold that money for 10 minutes or 10 years and not at least not lose purchasing power. And in fact, I would argue I should gain purchasing power because my delayed gratification, uh, my low time preference should increase my purchasing power. Yep. That's, that's the natural law of things. So if, if the opposite happens though, then that's theft. It's a theft, not of my value, but of my time. And if you steal somebody's time, that's slavery. Yep. And so, um, 
you know, we, we could, I'm sure we could spend a whole podcast on the philosophical components of that, but you know, we tolerate slavery. That's what's happening yeah. through ignorance. I, I think yeah. largely we just don't, the financial illiteracy in our world is what allows this form of slavery, right? It might sound extreme, but that's really, if you break it down, what it is, it gets tolerated because it's accepted as a norm because we were cast under this spell mostly by through ignorance because we're not taught about how money works. Um, and, but I think what I think mentioning that gives context to sort of the importance of Bitcoin. And when we get into mining, mining is actually what allows Bitcoin to work. Uh, it's what allows the network to be protected and actually survive and propagate yep. and continue on. Yep. And, you know, before we get on to mining specific topics, what's the, you know, as a CEO of Barefoot Mining, what do you see Barefoot Mining's place as in, in terms of like long-term vision? Like, you know, there's going to be different ways of doing mining, large scale, small scale, at home, hosting, machines, like there's so many elements, right? And I guess what, what niche is Barefoot Mining going to settle in? And um, like what area of that whole mining ecosystem do you think Barefoot Mining uh, will, will kind of settle in? I'm going to answer it quickly and then I'm going to, then we're going to go on to a, a deep dive. <laughs> so, Sounds good. Sounds so, good. I'm stoked. And by the way, whatever framework I have laid out, if we go somewhere else, I'm cool with that. As long as yeah. we're sticking to the topic of mining, uh, you know, even if we go on transitory tangents, I'm cool with that. So it's all good. Okay. All right. Well, hopefully, hopefully those of you listening, uh, feel the same. So what, what barefoot is specializing in is what I call boutique off-grid mining. Okay. So boutique, let's break that down. Boutique means, you might call it medium size, small, small, medium to medium size mining. A couple hundred kilowatts, if you want to put in a couple hundred kilowatts, maybe up to several megawatts, but not double digit megawatts in any one site. Okay, And we'll talk about why uh, in a little bit. And while we're not exclusively off grid, our focus is off grid. So if, if the stars align properly, we will do on grid. We do have our original operations were all on grid. So, you know, why, why do we pick that spot? You know, and, and so um, I'm going to try something here. I'm in, the, I'm in the process of writing an article and it's on this very topic of, of what are the different, what, what should the mining ecosystem look like? What does a healthy mining ecosystem look like? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to try this with you. For first time publicly trying this. Okay. I like it. I'm on so, it. <laughs> all right. So envision three animals, elephants, horses, and rabbits. Okay. Now also envision that each of those animals can exist in captivity or in the wild. Now, um, the analogy is going to be, so where we're going with this, is that the elephants are equivalent to the really large miners in the space, the core scientifics and the riots and the bit farms and those sort of, those sort of organizations. Um, and the horses are like my, like my company. Okay? We're, the, we're the ones in, in that size range. Um, and the rabbits are essentially the home miners. And 
Now, each of those can exist, as I said, in the wild or in captivity. In captivity means you're using grid-based power. And in the wild means you're off-grid. This is a brilliant metaphor, by the way. This is a great oh, you like it? Yeah, yeah, keep going, keep going. Okay. So, so now envision you have, you have wild elephants and captive elephants. You have wild horses and captive horses and wild rabbits and captive rabbits. Okay. So a lot of the focus in the industry is the headlines especially are about what happens with the elephants. So you'll read a headline, whether it's even in the mainstream media or in Bitcoin magazine or in different publication about one of the elephants having a 200 megawatt facility, a hundred megawatt facility, a 50 megawatt facility. We should all be happy about those things happening. And, and I, I, you know, they, they are providing a lot of horsepower, uh, no pun intended. Um, and elephant power. All yeah. Power. They're, they're providing a lot of elephant power yeah. to the, to the ecosystem. Essentially, at this point, all of those efforts are captive, though. They're captive elephants. And they're doing so largely. And like I said, I applaud it. I, I hope in no way anything I say comes off negative about them. But what's happening is they are working. Let's, let's say it's in Texas where uh, an organization working with ERCOT and, and they're, they're developing a system where they're going to pull 200 megawatts and they'll work cooperatively with the grid so that if the grid has, has needs, they're willing to shut down and provide, uh, provide energy to the grid. On the other hand, they're providing stability to the grid by having this large constant power. Makes sense. Like, and it's they're like a shock absorber for energy for grids like that. Yep. Yep. And it's, it's important for the energy grid and it's very important for Bitcoin. But there are, at least at this point in time, there are no wild elephants. Okay. So if, if I said, hey, Nick, I, I'm going to send you on a mission and I want you to kill all the elephants. It's not that hard to identify them, right? They're all in captivity. It's hard to hide. They're hard to hide. And I could be a nation state that wants to shut them down. I could be a environmental activist organization that wants to environmental activist. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you, you know, and, and so, yeah, that's a little ironic in that analogy, but I could say, I want to cut them down. Now, if, 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 if that's all that exists, we as a Bitcoin ecosystem have a huge problem because vulnerable to poaching. We are, we are very, very vulnerable. And if, if, if I said, uh, let's rephrase it again, another way, if I say, Hey, Nick, you have to, I want you to go extinct an animal. You can pick rabbits, horses, or elephants. What are you going to pick? You're going to pick yeah. elephants, yeah. right? Cause there's less of them. They they're, they're not mobile right? They, they move slowly. Um, and in this case, they're all captive. Okay. So what we need then is, um, let's go to the other end. Okay. Because I think 
there's a lot of people out there into home mining. Now, there's two ways to be in home mining. You can be captive or you can be wild. And most of the rabbits are captive. You know, they're, they're miners in their garage, in their office. Um, uh, very few of them have the capacity and the ability to become wild. Um, now, I think over time that may change, whether that's with solar panels or small wind devices or you know, things like that that people can do at home. But right now, that part of the infrastructure is very, very captive as well. Right. Um, and it, by the way, it's too small. It needs to grow. It needs to be bigger. Um, now, there are organizations, again, an organization I'm a big fan of, and, and I, I, I've, I've met a lot with, like, for instance, the Compass Mining people. The Compass Mining people are, what essentially they're doing is they're connecting rabbits to, to elephants. So, but all in captivity. Right. So, what I'm saying is uh, at, at those two ends, at the very smallest end and at the very biggest end, we as a Bitcoin ecosystem have literally tied our fortunes to the grid. We are very, very dependent. Yep. Right now, what, what Barefoot's trying to do, one, because I see economic opportunity, but two, I see an important um, need within the ecosystem to develop the horse category, especially the horse category that's not captive. So we are the wild horses. And so my mission is to find energy sources that I can own and control that are not tied to the grid and put as much capacity as possible out there. And as I said, these are sites in that size. It can be 100 kilowatts, even 200 kilowatts, which, you know, if you're using S19, well, okay, you got, you know, 75 units, 50 units on up to maybe a couple thousand units, you know, that, that kind of size operation. But, but one, not connected to the grid in control of that energy source, and two, one that's mobile. So even if something happens to that energy source or there's some threat to the site, site can move quickly to, some, to somewhere else. So hopefully that, that kind of tells you kind of how I view the ecosystem and also where I see barefoot mining sitting within it. I think that's a great framework to work within because it's simple uh, and it has so, you know, I almost look at energy as the food, right? Energy is the food that is required to sustain the animals. Rabbits require much less food. Um, they can multiply very quickly. Yep. Um, and you know, horse, wild horses essentially roaming around the wild, searching for food and landing on like, there's so many sources of stranded energy. And I think the horses flocking to wherever the food is and yes. finding sort of an equilibrium that sustains a certain population of horses long-term right. uh, is really cool. And I, I love the analogy of elephants because we kind of intuitively know there's not very many elephants 
Poaching yeah. is very profitable. Yeah. You know, talking smack about Bitcoin and trying to suppress it is very profitable for the powers that be right now. And so it's like, you know, we have to protect against poaching, but we also have to know that having everything in captivity is a, is a threat vector. Like it, yep. it increases our tax surface. It increases our risk. Um, having more things in the wild and having a broader diversity of species is how this ecosystem um, becomes anti-fragile and also how we allow this Darwinian mechanism to figure out, okay, what is the carrying capacity of what amount of species? And they all have their own strengths too, right? Like the right. elephants can um, plug into capital networks, which the rabbits yep. can't. Um, the horses are more nimble to move and the elephants maybe aren't. And so I, I'm going to be sitting on that metaphor for a long time. I think it's really good. Thank you for sharing it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my pleasure. I'm, I'm glad it resonated. Uh, I've been trying to describe this for quite a while and, and recently kind of this sort of coalesced for me that, that it was this way. And I, I approached it somewhat from an extinction perspective too. So obviously what happened in China was a big deal, right? I said, yeah. well, if, if, if a nation state can shut down something that big, what can they not shut down? Well, I think it would be very possible to extinct the elephants. It would be difficult to extinct the horses and it would be impossible to extinct the rabbits. So um, if they're all, especially if, if they're in the wild, the latter yeah. two are in the wild, then you've got yeah. no chance. It's hard to even find the rabbits, let alone kill them. It's like, oh, yeah. It's, yeah, 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 yeah. That's and, really, and it, that's really good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one thing I want to talk about, yeah, thank you for sharing that. And it's good to know, like now I know, okay, barefoot mining wants to be the horses, the wild horses of mine. You want to be the wild horses. right? And that's an important, I think, se segment of the ecosystem that contributes to the antifragility because you don't have the risk of being on grid and you also have more, um, you can have a good amount of hash power held in those horses because they have the mid capacity. Um, yeah. but they are also more nimble where if something, you know, if a, if a terrain became unfriendly, the horses can move. Can move. Um, exactly. And, and I think that's really cool. Uh, one thing I want to talk about is the, the FUD, the fear, uncertainty, doubt uh, around mining and sort of this um, almost transition that I kind of, you know, initially energy was a big concern for people. Everyone was talking about energy. Bitcoin's taking up too much energy. It's not sustainable. And, you know, it was like misplaced, um, effort on behalf of activists simply because they don't understand the landscape of energy. Um, and, you know, I, I have two things that came across um, my radar in the past couple of days that I just want to say, because it gives context to this. So one first one was from Adam Back and he talked, I live in Canada. The province of Quebec here in Canada has unused hydropower. So hydropower that we have capacity for, but that is not being used because we don't have a place for it. Right. Unused hydropower. That's two times more than the entire Bitcoin network. So literally Quebec, one province in Canada could power the whole Bitcoin network and have extra energy left that is wasted and being unused. And I think that gives context to this whole notion that Bitcoin uses more energy than a small country, which really has no perspective to ground it. And so people take it at face value and assume it's bad. And the other thing that I came across was from the Bitcoin Mining Council, their 2021 Q3 uh, briefing, and it. It, one of the stats that they put there um, was global Bitcoin mining consumes 0.38% of the world's wasted energy, not of the world's energy, of the world's wasted energy. So I think, I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding out there that energy 
is scarce. It is not. Um, getting energy to the right places might be a challenge, but energy itself is not scarce. There's actually so much wasted energy out there that we can literally just plug into. Um, and I think the other thing is like, people don't understand that Bitcoin fundamentally seeks out cheap energy, which tends to be energy that's wasted or energy that is from sustainable sources. And so what's, what's your perspective on sort of the, the FUD, I guess, around energy in the, in the mining community and the direction it's going? Because to me, it seems like for anyone doing a cursory amount of research, you can see pretty quickly that Bitcoin, you know, regardless of what you have to fundamentally believe Bitcoin's a good use of energy. So that requires people to actually understand what Bitcoin's doing, the problem it's solving and the fact that it's a very important problem to solve for the world. But even aside from that, Putting energy into context, seem, it seems like a lot of the bullshit has been debunked and the FUD is moving on to other areas like taxation or regulation or whatever. What are your, what are your thoughts on that? Fascinating topic. Uh, I'll start with this. Um, you're Canadian. I'm, I'm American. But as far as I know, there's not a single country in the world where there are laws about what you use energy for. So the fact that energy is used to power TVs or hair dryers or Christmas lights or, you know, whatever, um, to date, nobody's ever proposed regulation or restriction on energy usage. So I, I believe those attacking Bitcoin with this uh, attack vector, with this attack vector, are, are really infringing on our rights, you know, our rights as a human to decide how we want to use energy. Yep. And, and so I, I think, first of all, whether Bitcoin uses a lot of energy or not, it doesn't. You have to be very, we have to, as a society, we have to be careful about, uh, about what's at stake here because we're, we're talking about that. And I, I've done the math, for instance, I like some of the stats you've done. I'll, I'll give you one about TVs. I used to design TVs too. I have that in my past. And I've, I've calculated the power consumption of TVs globally. And it's a little over 2x the power consumption of the Bitcoin network. Well, you know, when people say things like, well, it consumes all this energy and it doesn't do anything useful. I mean, that's, that's usually the second part of it. We don't yeah. need it. It doesn't do anything useful. You know, uh, is, is watching TV useful? Is it, is it useful to blow dry your hair? I don't have that problem, but you know, there are plenty of people who would, who would say that's a very valid use. So, so I, I think that's, a, that's the first thing. The second thing is the, the mining council statistics, and I've, I've followed through with that, that some, some um, backup on that. I know these off the top of my head, by the way, because this comes up a lot. I used it just this morning because I'll tell you about a conversation I had in just a second at, at, at the university with another professor. And the total global energy consumption is 173,000 terawatt hours annually. Okay. By the way, of which 173,000, that's the key, terawatt hours, 173,000. 
of which 90% is fossil fuels. The Bitcoin network, 120 to 150 terawatt hours. No K, right? So, okay. so we, are, we are consuming well under one one thousandth of the world's energy. So our, our, it would be one, yeah, one one thousandth of the world's energy. We're consuming less than that. Our energy is right now uh, at least 40% renewables. So we are 4x the renewable penetration. And rapidly- Our energy, are you talking about Bitcoin Mining Council or Barefoot? Bitcoin, Bitcoin mining in okay. general. And that number, that number was pre the, chi- the China mining ban, which distorted the numbers. I can't substantiate it for sure. But I would guess we've flipped that now. We're probably about 60% renewables and 40% fossil. Wow. And of the fossil, very little of it is coal, by the way. Very little. Um, and most of that is natural gas. So, you know, there's all this op- these optics. And the one that um, Bitcoin's proponents or, or, or deterrents, uh, the, its detractors, try to use is they'll say Bitcoin uses more electricity. They, 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 they categorize that as electricity, not power to, to further um, kind of cut, cut, cut that number down. Yeah. It's almost like they distort it. They distort it to their advantage. Yeah. And they'll say it's more than Australia or Bulgaria or, you know, I don't know. They'll pick some country in that New Zealand, some, some country in that strata. And and then add, and it doesn't do anything useful. You know, my my take would be if Bitcoin's power consumption was ten times what it would what it is, what it does is is so important. I don't think anybody should care. And even if that ten x was all spewing bad carbon, we're still fixing what I believe to be the biggest problem in the world, which is money is broken. So now we're not doing that. Because to the point, another point you made, as an industry, the economics are such that the low cost energy that that miners seek is that energy that is underutilized today. So what we're doing is we're finding those energy sources, we're developing those energy sources, we're investing capital in those energy sources and generally, this goes back to the thing I talked about before, we are bringing the mining to the power. Historically, power has always had to find its way to, to the need. Now the need goes to the power. Yeah. And, and that's, that's, a big, that's a big deal. And yeah. you know, my, my company is, is an example of that. That's what we are doing. We are bringing the, our, our wild horses, right? We're we're, we're going out, we're, we're, we're going to go where the food is. I, li- I like what you said there. We're going where the food is. And it's food that was going to rot anyway. That's a great point. And I, you know, to your point before where someone says, and it doesn't do anything. I think it's so, you know, like ig- people who are uninformed have this weird confidence about them often. And to say that something that people are spending that much money to power has no use 
means they're saying, I know better than the market of millions of humans. And it's such a arrogant, such an arrogant, yeah. uh, silly statement that I don't know if those right. people are actually being taken seriously anymore. Uh, it kind of just looks bad on them, uh, more so than actually like convinces people. It's like, well, why are people doing it if it's, if it's useless and why are these companies not just only doing it, but actually making lots of money doing it right. Energy companies now have a, a, a straight up pipeline to transition into a tech company by partnering with Bitcoin miners. And it's this very elegant game theory where everyone seems to be getting pulled into the orbit of Bitcoin out of financial incentive, right? Like out of basically you could say greed, but it's really just, we react to incentives. If something's profitable and the pros and cons lean on the pros, we're going to do it. And so all of the energy sector is kind of being co-opted into aligning with the Bitcoin network because it's in their best interest. Bitcoin is the best commercial consumer of energy on planet earth. And that's a very special thing to say, if you can say it truthfully. And it's because it has no preference to the bandwidth of power, to the location of power, to, and what I mean by bandwidth is like a nuclear reactor. If you can use the entire power output of a nuclear reactor or a small sub-segment, that is the bandwidth. And most most use cases for energy cannot use full bandwidth energy, but Bitcoin can. And Bitcoin, like you said, the horses go where the food is. You can't move. Um, people all of a sudden to go where the energy is, it's not practical. It's not even practical to transport the energy, but the fact that Bitcoin can literally teleport, not teleport, but transport its machines to the location of energy, to the source of energy once and leave it there and run it from there. Like that's a pretty special thing. (laughs) It, it, it absolutely, it's unprecedented. Yeah. And We'll see what if, if this comes to reality. But what you'll find is in some cases that when we go to one of these remote locations, we may not consume 100% of that power. We may have extra power and then actually be able to support communities yeah. that may want to, or other industries that want to... Um, coexist with us there because it, you know, it, it doesn't always, it doesn't always work out that, you know, we may have a site that has eight megawatts of capacity, let's say, let's say it's a natural gas site. Well, for a variety of reasons, we may be only may decide to invest in four megawatts of mining capacity there. So if others have need, we, you know, we'll be there as the base. Interestingly, almost the horse then turning into an elephant at some point in time, because, um, you know, we, we now have this other community that anchors around us. That's okay. That's evolutionary. They can coexist. And I, yeah. Yeah. You know, and I, have this- I, I think it's important as well to, to think through how, um, how the economics ultimately balance. Okay. So, First, a lot of the detractors that go on this energy vector will talk about energy per transaction. Well, if you, if you understand Bitcoin well, you'll understand that that's not how it works. First of all, it's not a block, a, you process a block, you really don't process transactions. And that an empty block can be processed and will be processed. So it, it doesn't have to be a transaction, first of all. 
Secondly, the miners are not just, even to the degree there are transactions within the block, we're not just preparing those transactions to go on to on chain. We're securing all that's ever been, right? We we're securing the integrity of the ledger and we're protecting all the wealth that sits on it. So when you talk about visa processing a transaction, yes, they're just processing a transaction, but they're not, they're not maintaining and storing the wealth of people there. You know, that's, that's what we're doing. We're, we're, we're protecting that integrity. The other thing is um, a bit of a rabbit hole, but when people say Visa processes this many transactions per second and Bitcoin only does X number, 2,000 uh, every 10 minutes or whatever the, that turns out to per minute or per second, they're comparing the Bitcoin system, which provides transaction finality, to another one that is very, um, well, it's very mutable, right? So we like these terms, it is mutable. It is, yeah. it is not solid and it's several months go by until it's even semi formed. We, we, you know, we are the quick drying cement and, and, and they're some sort of, you know, gas. <laughs> Gas, yeah, that never really solidifies, right? So, well, I don't think people understand how the actual current legacy finance system works, right? If they did, then you'd make an easily, you'd make an easy analogy. You'd say, well, the banks have to clear with each other. All the giant entities have to clear with each other final settlement at the end of each day or at the end of whatever yeah. period of time. Visa clears quicker, but it's done with credit, not actual, not a bearer instrument. And then all of a bank's visa transactions will be tabulated and then it will be cleared with another bank through, yeah. you know, like this global settlement network. If people understood that, then you could easily get across that, well, Bitcoin is the settlement layer and Lightning is like Visa, which is processing transactions. And better yet, it's not Visa with credit, it's Visa with a bearer instrument. Right. Um, and, but most people don't have the template to actually be able to explain that. And so they don't know that like, it's really important that the foundation base layer be robust and handle a certain amount of capacity, but it certainly doesn't have to handle you buying coffee. That's not actually part of the design, right? But most people don't understand lightning. And if they've heard of lightning, they don't even know the mechanics of how that fits into the layer cake of, of this new ecosystem. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll add one other thing too, which is even with the bank to bank settlement, it's still not settled there are still right. mechanisms where things can be reversed. And yep. one that I have felt as a business person over time, um, owning businesses, for instance, that accept credit cards is that, or checks is uh, for instance, I used to run a chain. I owned and ran a chain of retail stores in the upper Midwest, consumer electronics. And we'd sell somebody a TV, let's say, similar to like the one in the, in behind me. And so they buy it for $800 or $1,000, whatever the, the price is. And they, they, um, they walk out the door and, and we have a credit card that's been run. Three days later, and at the end of the day, we run it and we get our money as a merchant. Three days later, five days later, we get a phone call. 
and from Visa or MasterCard and they say, um, hey, sorry, there was a, a fraudulent transaction that was a stolen credit card and we're taking your money back. <laughs> like the 800 we gave you, we're debiting that from your account. And, and you're so, not getting well, your TV back either. And we're not getting the TV back. Yeah. And, and there's another piece of the existing financial system that people don't understand. And that's that the merch, the, the credit card companies take almost no risk. They take two to 3% cut and they're not even taking the risk. And, and, and what, as a merchant, what are we supposed to do? You know, we, we have to now imagine on that TV, we only make 20%. Well, I got to sell like 40 more TVs or that many, whatever the percentage, I got to sell four or five more TVs just to make up for that one that essentially got stolen from me. Yeah. And, but, but the, the, the politicians and the structure of the, the current financial system is very consumer protection oriented. And I'm not saying that's all a bad thing, but nobody cares about the merchants. Right. And so Bitcoin, interestingly, as merchants understand it, are going to absolutely love it. Yeah. Because that can't happen. And so, by the way, that TV, instead of being $800, might have only been $750 if I didn't have to worry about... Um, the 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 loss Accounting right for those losses yeah yeah right. and even and, and you know people always talk about oh i love the points i'm getting on my visa how do they do this like how are this visa giving me this i'm like well if you start a business you know exactly where that's coming from because it's coming from what businesses get charged in order to use the visa network uh and it's i i, I really agree there it equalizes the responsibility where when you give it's because because giving someone bitcoin is like giving someone cash right? There is no, it's a bearer asset. And I don't think bearer asset or bearer instrument actually gets said often enough. You know, like if yeah. someone steals money from your right. bank account, you can complain to your bank, you probably get it back. The bank yeah. will absorb that. If someone steals cash from your wallet, you can't really tell, tell anyone and have them recoup that for you unless you catch the person. So as a bearer instrument, whoever is, it's like 10 tenths of the law is possession with Bitcoin. Yeah. And the idea that once something goes through, that is there, it cannot be reversed. Um, requires people to be more responsible with how they're sending it. And like yeah. Visa, like credit cards are so dumb. You literally give people the password to access all the funds to put through a transaction. Like yeah. how stupid is that? To expect no one to expect yeah. anything less than a shitload of fraud would be silly, right? I'm giving you the password in order to use this. Um, and I, I think it's, you know, not only that, but like instead of charging 300 basis points, you can now charge like 20 or 50. Yes. And so it's financially incentivized. It is much more attractive to merchants, like you said, for that reason that they can't have all these chargebacks. And, you know, we sell the health network that I work for as a physical product sales division, and we feel the hit of chargebacks. People get like, they'll yep. buy like five pairs of shoes. And then we get a notice later that says, yep, this was fraud. We don't get the shoes back. And Visa just gives that person their money back. And sometimes people actually do chargebacks when we know for a fact they received the product. And it's like really weird thing. It's like a loophole that people take advantage of with credit cards yeah. that basically disappears with the bearer asset. Yeah. And the, the, the basic assumption is always in favor of the consumer. Yep. So, uh, and, and the laws were written that way. And 
I think if you think about the politicians, doesn't matter what country you're in, you know, the politicians chase the votes. Well, there's a lot more consumers than there are merchants. Sure. And they love to talk about, you know, if, if you, um, if you look at, at regulation, they love having a poster child, some person who got ripped off by a merchant or on an investment or something like that. And then, um, they came up with this new law, the John Smith law, so that things like what happened to John Smith never happen again. Sure. But, um, and, and, and I'm, I'm sure those are real and bad things have happened to people. And I'm not saying even that there shouldn't be any regulation that said, um, there are rep- repercussions for of, of everything. There are consequences of everything. And it doesn't come free. As I said, you know, as you said, you've, you've seen it in your business. I've seen it in some of my businesses in the past that, that if I take a credit card as a merchant, I'm taking a, a really material risk. And the mm-hmm. bigger the ticket, the item, the risk it gets is? really sticky. Actually, the, the worst ones are those midterm ones. Actually, now that I think about it, it's, it's not if, if somebody stole $50,000 worth of something from me on a credit card, I probably will go pursue. I'll, I'll figure out some legal avenue to at least chase them and try to find them. If they take an $800 TV from me, what am I supposed to do? I can't, I can't afford a lawyer. I can't afford a private investigator. I can't really do anything to practically try to get my TV back. It's not, it's not going to happen. Right. So yeah, it becomes a cost of doing business, which is a shame because that gets passed on to the consumer. And I think at the end of the day, it's who is shouldering the responsibility, right? Like that is, it should be more distributed. Like I, I agree, you know, this whole veil of consumer protection is often just used to justify bullshit. Um, and I think that if we just accept that we should all equally shoulder the burden of being very careful with what we do with our money, um, yeah. Then, then we, we end up doing better by everyone because merchants aren't getting ripped off as much. People are being more careful with how they use their funds. Um, and prices go down because the friction, the, the externality of people stealing, costing everyone in the system more money gets removed when every, when the responsibilities equalize and it's harder to steal from someone. And I think that's what Bitcoin right. fundamentally does. It makes it harder for someone to steal from you. You know, like if you protect your keys, you know, the Visa card itself is like a key. You're giving the key out all day long. Someone's probably going to steal it from you at one point. You never yeah. give people the private key when you're sending Bitcoin. You yeah. use it as a signature. You only give the public key out. So I think it's a really, yeah. it's like a fundamental shift in yeah. how we view transactions. Yeah. And Are you familiar cool. with the concept of push and pull? Have you ever heard that terminology before? I have. What context are you using it in? Well, um, in, in financial transactions. So cash is what would be categorized as a push transaction as would Bitcoin, meaning that I am the sender and you are the receiver. So I push the money to you. Mm. If a credit card is a pull transaction, and so I'm, I'm this... I'm giving you my card. I'm giving you full rights. I'm giving you the rights to pull the money out of my account. And so if you, uh, if I was buying shoes from you and let's say a pair of shoes is a hundred dollars, I gave you my credit card. 
and you ran it for a thousand, even if you gave me the shoes, you have the right to pull it. Now I have to go do the work to undo that. If you, you know, so I've given, that's just an example of the power when it, when something is a pull situation, then you're giving phenomenal power to the receiver. If it's a push situation and it's back into the, the, the bearer sort of thing, you know, that, that, you know, it, it replicates cash, right? Cash is, as, as, has been the, the, the real push thing, uh, you know, uh, the, the traditional push instrument and things like credit cards are the pull instrument and yeah. a lot of danger with a pull. Yeah. That's a good, uh, that's a good kind of mental model to think of it. And with a push, you are fully responsible to making sure you only push the right amount of funds, right? You're not having yeah. to trust that that person is going to use that uh, right. permission you gave them um, yeah. in a, in a negative yeah. way. So yeah. yeah, I think eliminating no, and, trust, right? Yeah. And you know, we should point out to people too, that somehow or another as a, as a global society almost is this way, we've decided that the financial banking infrastructure of the world should be the arbitrator of financial transactions. I don't know why, because yeah. if, um, let's say as this example, um, I, I buy shoes from you again. Okay. They're supposed to be, I don't know, a uh, hundred thousand sats. Okay. Okay. But I accidentally send you a million. Um, now you're a nice guy. You're an ethical guy. I'm pretty sure if I said, Hey, Nick, I, I, I made a mistake. Can you send me the 900 back? I bet you would. First, first of all, there's nothing that says you can't do that. Number sure. one. Number two, if you said, no, screw you, I still have legal recourse. Uh, there's, there is a mechanism in basically every country in the world for that sort of situation to get handled. Um, what we're not doing is allowing a visa or a bank of America or a bank of Scotland or wherever it is you live to be the arbitrator. Um, which if you think about it, they, they become a form of judge and jury. Um, and frankly, I don't trust them. I would, I don't always trust the judicial system either, but I, I think I got a better shot in front of a jury of my peers and a, and a judge than I do, um, arguing my case to a customer service agent at visa or some vice president of some local bank. I, I, I'd, I'd rather take my chances. Yeah, that's a good point. And it's, it really is, uh, it depersonalizes it and creates more friction by having a third party who's like in the ether. Like I do this all the time. We get this all the time with PayPal, right? People say, Oh, I don't recognize the charge charges back. And we say, well, actually we have the tracking number. It got delivered. And just the fact that you got to constantly go back and forth with people who have no context, right? Like they have to be given full documentation and context and you just hope that they make a good judgment. But the whole thing, like even the scenario that you said before, you try and send me a hundred thousand sats, you send me a million. If I don't send you back the balance, you're not going to buy anything from me again. I'm probably going to have some action against me. You're going to tell every single person, you know, not to buy shit from me because you did something by accident and I showed bad faith. And so I think there's recourse the game theory is such that it's in my best interest as a business to send that back because not only is it fair, but it carries consequence if I don't, but it's a social consequence, not a random consequence from an arbiter that we don't know. Um, yeah. 
So yeah, I think it's just a, it's a cleaner way of, if we just let people deal with people instead of having to always go through a third party who we say is trusted, but oftentimes breaches our trust or simply can't handle the complexity of how many transactions are going on. Um, it's a better world when humans can deal with humans because they work shit out. It's in our best mutual best interest to work things out. (laughs) Um, and we, I think Bitcoin gets us back to that. I want to talk about the importance of miners for the whole Bitcoin ecosystem, right? Like you said it before, miners are protectors of the network. They are literally securing property rights for all humans on earth. And I think the people who say, oh, it does nothing, like clearly they haven't done any homework at all to understand Bitcoin. And this is an incredibly important role. So number one, thank you for being part of that global community of protectors. But I also want to talk about, you know, I love Michael Saylor's analogy of the seven layers of security with Bitcoin. Um, and I also love the fact that the first four layers are largely provided by miners. And that really just shows how important they are. So the seven layers that he talks about are energy, technology, political, financial, network, spatial, and temporal. And when you look at energy, technology, political, and financial, you know, those last two political and financial are probably much more influenced by the elephants. Um, but the first two are kind of influenced by all by all species in this ecosystem, right? Energy, the rabbits, the horses, and the elephants are all seeking out sources for food. They're all seeking out energy. Those animals are also all on this kind of like, it's like a tug of war between energy and technology, it seems. And it goes through cycles where it's like, you know, an S9, if an S19 is five times as efficient as an S9 generation in the course of, I don't know, three years, then there's a technology side to this as well. And I think this is one of these fundamental misconceptions where people say, oh, Bitcoin takes this much energy. If it grows this much or keeps growing, it's going to take this much energy. But they don't understand that actually, not only does it not follow a linear path of energy to number of transactions or size of Bitcoin, maybe it follows the log, but it certainly doesn't grow one-to-one because things like lightning affect that. Things like the technology, right? If if every three years we're getting 5x more efficient, in 10 years we're 100 and whatever, 5 times 5 times 5, 125 times right. more efficient, we're taking very little energy to maintain the same level of hash rate. And so, you know, right. what, what are your thoughts on sort of how do you view the role of miners in the whole ecosystem? Because I don't think they get enough love. I really, I want to, this show is all about <laughs> repping the miners because I'm so pissed at people just skipping over miners in terms of their understanding with Bitcoin or constantly throwing shit at the miners for being too big, taking too much power. It's like, guys, do you actually understand how this works? These are the most important humans for this thing to work. Let's (laughs) be on their side here. I I appreciate that because I said, we, 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 we don't feel love every day. And I mentioned earlier today, I was, I was um, in some classes at Florida Gulf coast university and there was another professor. I, I won't oh, say yeah, a name. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about but, it. But he, um, he, he used to work in the Federal Reserve, by the way. Oh, interesting. Not biased at all. Not biased. Not biased at all. <laughs> and uh, as respectfully as possible, um, I had to, we, we ended up in, in a, a, say, a fairly animated discourse okay. because he threw the energy consumption FUD the the use by criminals and money launderers fud the the 21 million limit might not be real fud 
Um, you know, so we got, we got the whole, the whole, the whole basket today. <laughs> and, uh, you know, knowing that I was, I come from a technical background and knowing that I come from the mining industry, I'm, I'm surprised somewhat that he challenged me on that. And I, I, I don't know that there are winners and losers in these sorts of things, but let's just say, I, I feel I did, uh, a pretty good job defending those of us on this side of the, the equation. And, and I think it, what was great was, um, you know, I'm a boomer. Um, this guy's more of a boomer. <laughs> he's, he's probably 10 or 15 years older than me. And we'll probably put him in his early seventies and obviously came from the financial establishment and the students resoundingly in, in the classes resoundingly supported Bitcoin. So I, uh, you know, but, but the understanding of mining is pretty poor and the understanding of what we do in the ecosystem is pretty poor. Um, you're absolutely right that, that the improvements in technology um, mean that our ability to, to grow the strength of the network with time um, improves. Um, our energy usage does not follow the same curve. That's what Moore's law, uh, you know, a lot of people look at Moore's law as, as the, um, uh, when, you know, how many transistors you can fit in a chip is really what it's about. Like, and it, it doubles every 18 months. Now we've fallen off of that curve. The side effect of that is that power consumption also reduces. So we get, we get more computing power in the same footprint, but we also get less power consumption in that same footprint. And so the Bitcoin network, as it grows in hash, is not necessarily going to consume phenomenal amounts of power. Will it get three times bigger, five times bigger, eight times bigger? Probably. It probably will. I don't know that it'll get a lot, lot bigger than that. I think it will it will start to kind of find a balance. Now it'll, it'll grow in hash, but not so much in power consumption. Right. And, and I think that it self moderates itself to a certain degree right now, if you're in the mining business, you're profitable. Okay. And it, it, whether you're paying three cents a kilowatt hour or 15 or 20, or you're a home miner paying 24, you're probably with an S nine, you're probably still making money. Right. But over time, that will change. It will, it, it will, you know, it'll, it'll get more competitive. Um, those with the lowest energy costs uh, and the highest level of of computing power will uh, will win. And I, uh, uh, anybody that's interested, I have a, a a blog that I do on Medium, and I've got some charts that were relative to the China mining ban. But I talk about kind of how this thing waterfalls, and there's some charts if anybody's interested in kind of how that flows. I've got some some charts about that. Um, so anyway, I, what, what I think it will find a balance point. I guess is what I'm getting at. That right. that at some point, you know, if we if we add too much capacity, then we'll 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 as we start adding more capacity, it just forces other miners out. It forces the higher power consumption, lesser. Um, uh, performance miners out, which reduces the power consumption. So we're going to find that balance point. 
I think it's somewhere between 5X and 8X where we are right now is where that balance point is going to be, which as we talked about before is a minuscule amount of energy. Right. On a percentage basis. And it's so interesting to see sort of this recovery, you know, the global mining network, I find even just like the units um, of uh, hashing, right. Um, Really kind of cool. And for anyone that comes from a computer world, it's, you know, you have a hash and then you have uh, kilo, mega, giga, tera, PETA, EXA. And right now we're at uh, about 150 EXA hash. I think I checked this morning is what the network's at. Um, but how quickly it recovered, right? It went down to like, I went based on blockchain.com's figures. It went down to 85 exa hashes at the start of July when the mining yeah. exodus happened from China um, from a high of 180 exa hash. And now we're back up to 150 and it rebounded yeah. very quick. And so I think that was just like a beautiful demonstration of how anti-fragile and resilient the Bitcoin mining world is because it's all, it's this massive mixture of incentives between, like you said, energy power, technology available. You know, you have companies like Square saying that they're going to look into creating an open source mining machine that, that can be decentralized, like basically creating the tech for rabbits. Um, And I'm sure that's not the last company, like, you know, Intel, Apple, all these companies that are make semiconductors. It's like, they haven't clued in yet. They haven't opened their eyes yet, but when they do, I think they're going to realize like, okay, we're a little bit behind because we took so long to get here, but it's better late than never. And now we're going to make the world's best uh, semiconductor mining rigs because making an ASIC is not rocket rocket science. And if you have the infrastructure in place, like there's a big opportunity there. So I'm excited to see where hash rate goes. And also, like you said, how it distributes. Because if we have massive amounts of hash rate, then mining becomes less profitable. And so you drop off the people who are no longer able to do it with a high profitability, high profit margin. And so you're always, you're always incentivizing the best people to uh, the most efficient people who have either the best power, the most efficient machines, the most resilient um, bandwidth of where yeah. their capacity is to do the job of securing the network. And it's like, it's so, it's so beautiful to witness. And yeah. it's so, it makes me feel really safe knowing that it's got all, all these things in place so that the attack vectors are really like, they're kind of gone in my opinion. Cause even if you had enough power, if you could harness enough power, you couldn't get a million mining machines overnight to do any kind of attack. Not to mention it would cost a bajillion amounts of money, of dollars to do over time. So it's, it's so much, yeah. it's, it's made it so that it's almost de-risked um, the, excuses people used to use and say, well, what if the network gets attacked? It's like, well, you don't know how it works because it's really hard to do that. Almost virtually impossible. I'd say, I'd say impossible at this point. I agree. I, I think that what you said was, was, was nuts on. One of the things that worries me, um, which we haven't really talked about worrying, so is it's very important that those rabbits exist. And, and even, as I said, I believe in the horses too. But we're at a point where we have to be careful that the elephants don't eat all the food. Mm-hmm. So, and the food, the food not being the energy, but also the ASICs, right? So it's like the food and the water. Maybe, maybe we, we give the analogy. So Ooh, I like that. You no, know, the, if, if the energy is the food, then the ASICs are the water or vice versa. So we'll work on that analogy. Well, Right, I, I am worried about the the elephants eating all the food, and like or drinking all me, the water, drinking all the water, or drinking all the water. Sorry, yeah, uh, taking all the ASICs. 
Yeah. And we have shortages right now. Worldwide demand is very, very high. And if you're a rabbit, the only mechanism you have is, well, you can go to a company like Compass, and that's wonderful at an individual level. You can get access and you can go to Compass, but you're still kind of part of the captive elephants. And when you do that, if you want your own miner that, you know, you're going to put a small uh, uh, turbine in the creek that runs through your yard and power a couple miners, well, you're going to be going those, going to find those on the spot market. You're searching eBay, you're, you're doing those things. And, and the current infrastructure um, just isn't there. And as a wild horse, kind of the medium sized group, I can get them, but I have to make commitments with long lead times. I have to take a lot of risk to get them. Um, and if I, you know, if, if I don't, properly forecast my needs six, eight months in advance, I got, I got problems. And that's a lot to ask. I think that um, to me, that's the biggest threat to this ecosystem is, and you know, I'm not being critical of the elephants. They're doing what elephants do. But when you read an article, I don't know the specifics. You see, uh, riot. Need a lot says, of water to survive. This is just that's a byproduct of a large animal. They need a lot of resources. Yeah, and 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 they want yeah. to grow too. They want to multiply. Right. So if riot or or Mara or Core Scientific, you know, they they like to announce what they're doing, um, and they'll say, "Well, we're buying forty five thousand ASICs. We're buying ten thousand ASICs. We're doing this. We're doing that." Well, they're gobbling up massive amounts of a very finite resource and and finite right now finite right now finite right now but you know i i come from the world of the personal computer industry as we talked about and these kind of chip shortages whether they're at this in in the old days it was the cpus or the dram that we always had troubles with and we'd go through these supply shortages in those days, though, we were not competing so much with other industries. It was primarily our industry that consumed those things. And you had relationships with Intel or Samsung or, you know, whom, whom, TSMC, um, some of the same players as today. Um, but we could generally get what we wanted. Um, but now, if to compete with Ford and Tesla and... Fridges? Like, yeah. so many things now. yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's a real, real problem. And so, like I said, my, probably my biggest concern is, you know, can we get the rabbits what, what the rabbits want and what I think the ecosystem needs, which is a lot. I mean, I, I, I don't think it has to be, well, a third of the capacities with the elephants and a third with the horses and a third with the rabbits, but it needs to be a real number in all three groups. It needs to be substantial. In case something like what happened with China happens again, and we lose a third of the hash in the network or a half of the hash in the network, that we have a, a robust, diversified uh, network that still remains. Obviously, when China shut down, we did. We had enough going on in the rest of the world that with the exception of some slow block times for one difficulty adjustment period, we had issues. But other than that, there's no problem. We also saw the recovery, like you said, 
Now, I, I wrote some articles. If, if you guys look at my medium stuff, you'll see I made some predictions. The hash has come back faster than I thought. I'm pretty sure, and I can only substantiate this anecdotally, that it wasn't so much the China hash coming back online, but it was um, in acceleration of existing mining companies looking at the opportunity, mine included, saying, oh my gosh, you know, we, if, if we have power we're not using um, or ASICs that aren't on, we're, we're getting those suckers on fast. And I think, I think it was more that reaction. And again, um, this, is, this is pure conjecture. I suspect that not 100% of the miners stayed off in China. I think, I think um, I agree. it may it's have never that simple to just ixnay everyone there. I agree. Yeah. And they may have gone off for a brief period. And if 5, 10, 15% of them came back online, underground, um, you know, that, that I think that happened additionally. Um, I'm still getting phone calls from people uh, in China or representing people in China saying, we're looking for homes for miners. So I know that some of them are still trying to find it. Yeah. Obviously, the shipping problems created a huge issue for them, though, because if they weren't on the water <laughs> um, um, almost before the ban, which interestingly, I'll tell you another thing, too. Uh, I, I started receiving calls about people looking for hosting capacity a day or two after the announcement of the China ban. That's not surprising. What's surprising was several of them said the machines were already in the US. Mm. So what that means is they were shipped a while of, before. Some of them knew this was coming and and not all of them, some of them knew it was coming and they were already getting stuff moving because they they knew for, four to eight weeks in advance, at least that this was coming. So, um, so to the, to, to, to that extent, some of that hash, um, probably came online a little quicker, you know, but cool. Yeah. And I think, you know, Blockstream acquiring Spondulis and basically saying yeah. we are going to create, um, we're going to, we're getting into the manufacturing business for ASICs. Um, and I think there's more announcements to come, you know, obviously it takes time to set up, uh, an ASIC manufacturing operation, but I think the centralization of ASIC manufacturing in Asia is a, is a weakness. Um, and we're seeing that as a choke point for global availability of ASICs. But I think from every shortage, uh, there's an opportunity created and obviously there's a lag time where, which we're in right now, which means there's a shortage of ASICs. They're hard to come by. They're overpriced. Um, but that's only going to create an opportunity for other companies that, hey, maybe, you know, Intel never really thought of getting into the ASIC game, but now there's such a big gargantuan opportunity, they would be silly not to. So you never know. And I, I really have faith that these opportunities will be taken advantage of. Um, yeah. It's just, there's going to be an interim period of time where it's hard to be a rabbit when there's no rabbit food, right? Like there's, there's yeah. no carrying capacity for the rabbits. Um, and it doesn't help that the elephants are drinking all the water, but I think that fundamentally we need more wells right? Like ASIC yeah. manufacturers are like wells. There's only one well, it's getting sucked dry by all the elephants. If we get more wells um, and, you know, this whole thing with Square doing an open source design, like maybe that enables yeah. small players 
to create their own wells if the plans are already put out there for the world to be able to use. So I think, yeah. I think there's some cool stuff coming, but yeah, there is a, you're right. It is a concern. And I think it is one of the major risks right now is technology availability and the new landscape of competition for computer chips with everything from a car to like a microwave having a computer chip now. So um, a couple, two last things to kind of chat about, because I want to be sensitive with your time. We've got about 15 minutes left. One thing I want to ask about, and obviously this is something that comes up a lot and there's no, there's no way of knowing, but the transition from block reward to fees over the next 10 years, like what are your thoughts on this? Uh, you know, at a high level, how is this going to play out? How do you see this at a broad level um, unraveling over the next, let's call it decade, and then maybe even two decades, uh, the transition from block rewards to fees in terms of mining revenue? Uh, wow, great topic. About a year ago, I started looking at this when I started projecting economics of future sites. So when, when I do my sites, um, I typically do a combination of uh, my own money plus investor money to put up a new site. We generally do those each as its own little entity. So we develop a pro forma around that and approach investors and say, hey, we're going to do a two megawatt site and and these, this is the expected return. Usually we project a five-year horizon. Um, and then we tell them it's going to go on after that, but there'll be a technology refresh and probably another capital call to, to buy more ASICs. And, and um, you can either participate or you get diluted. That's the basic structure that I usually work under. Cool. And when you start projecting five years out, obviously that means that, that we're going to cross to the next halving. And that um, the block subsidy is going to go down, right, by half. And so the fee, we make this next halving from six and a quarter to 3.125. That's a big deal, obviously. And so um, I, I used to think, and some of the external groups that I worked with used to think that in the next halving in that period, we might see fees start to rival the subsidy in terms of the total reward. I'm, I'm having less confidence in that um, than I used to. Um, and I think the impact of that is things that are happening at layer two um, that, you know, we're just not seeing it when, when you follow, um, you know, mempool, I, I love going, I go there every day and just watch blocks sometimes and see yeah. if the pools that I'm involved with are winning blocks and things like, it's just kind of a fun little thing to look at. Well, um, you know, we, we see almost no fees right now, 0 0.1, 0 0.2, 0 0.3, maybe on a good block, uh, yeah. Bitcoin. And now my hope is that maybe that'll rise to the one Bitcoin level or so in the next having maybe one to one and a half Bitcoin. Along with a price increase per Bitcoin, which yeah. equalizes some of but, that. Yeah. So, you know, here's, here's an interesting thing though, is when, when you're involved in this, so I'm, I'm in this business to make Bitcoin, right? I mean, I'm, I'm here for this philanthropic thing. 
I'm not as price oriented, right? I, 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 one of the things I work with at a personal level is to try to remove my fiat mindset and to have my value language be Bitcoin, not dollars. Um, and, and I think that's a struggle for anybody. I spent 57 years essentially thinking in dollars and, you know, this, this is worth $1, not a hundred sats or, you know, whatever the, right. you know, and so to try to get my mind going that way is, is hard. So, but what I try to do in my business, is I try to measure my business in Bitcoin. And, that's amazing. and so um, I'm in the business of building Bitcoin. And so when I look at, at the block reward and what we're earning for my company, I'm trying to measure it in Bitcoin. And so um, I, I want to believe that as, even as the Lightning Network gains momentum, and, and, it, and there'll be other layer two things going on too, right? But um, as, as that momentum gains, um, that some of the fees relative on the settlement layer, on the base layer, start to go up. That essentially as the, that we'll see more the banks of the world, the banks of the Bitcoin world, the Coinbase's and the PayPal's and the, MasterCard, which says it's doing Bitcoin now and all that, they, they are going to have to have regular settlement on the, on the blockchain, right? Yep. Just like we talked about before with, with the fiat system, they're going to have to have regular settlement. And as they start moving very large sums of money, um, you know, a, a, a 10 Bitcoin settlement, a 100 Bitcoin settlement, a 1,000 Bitcoin settlement. And some of those might also be huge stacks of UTXOs, which means that they are more data heavy, right? Like moving yes. 10 Bitcoin from one UTXO to another one is different than taking 10,000 UTXOs, moving hundred Bitcoin. And that data, that data intensity actually carries with it a charge. And so hopefully that, yeah. I think that goes into the mix a little bit as well. Yeah. And, and, and they have to start competing with each other for this, right? So I, um, I'm hoping that that will drive fees up. I'm, I, I think it's going to be less than I thought it was um, earlier, but I but I'm I'm hoping that the average block as we get past the next halving, we get into it just a little bit. I think there'll be a there's always a little turbulence right after the halving. I, I hope we're settling into maybe one one and a half Bitcoin as a common settlement layer. Cool. Um, I think Liquid has something to contribute to this too. I'm I'm very. Yeah. I'm at the very start of my journey of understanding liquid and side chains. And yeah. I really love what Blockstream's doing. They have their hands in everything. I think it's yeah. so cool. And this, you know, like I heard a podcast the other day and they were talking about the notion of settling large transactions on liquid, like for example, a house. So if I buy a house, I'm paying all these yeah. fees for lawyers to essentially make sure that that house is now registered to me. And if you take 50% of the legal fees and you replace it with a small smart contract on liquid, then that fee to settle my house sale might be a contributor, a large single fee contributor uh, as a transaction to the liquid network, which is on Bitcoin. And so I don't know how that's going to work, how that, yeah. you know, like what portion of that fee goes to the base layer settlement, what portion goes to yeah. liquid. I have no idea how that works, but part of me 
thinks that large transaction settlement of like selling a business, selling a home, selling yeah. a property, um, part of that, because it's such an important thing to get right, will be an on-chain transaction and carry with it a high fee because there's already existing high fiat fees for that. Yeah. And so like stuff like that, those thought experiments make me think like, yeah, I think this is, it might be something that we don't even know right now because we're not expecting it because there's no need for it. Right. But I think right. the, the organism of Bitcoin will dynamically adapt to make sure it stays sustainable by making this transition over time. And, you know, when you, when you talked about pricing things in, in Bitcoin, um, you know, we're doing this thing, I'm going to create some Bitcoin apparel. Cause I'm, I, you know, you're making, I know you're making Bitcoin swag, yeah, but yeah. we, I, I have a, this, yeah. I have people in Ottawa that I've kind of aligned with and they they're aligned with makes things that fit well are durable and uh, charge a fair amount for them. Be very transparent. So basically we came up with this model where every time we do a batch, we take our fiat cost times 1.55 and that's the price. And we'll show the price in both fiat Canadian dollars and also sats so that over time, if Bitcoin is becoming more valuable, if you're paying in sats, that apparel is getting much cheaper. If you're paying in fiat, if each batch is getting more expensive because of supply constraints and just inflation, it's getting more expensive. So I really love, it is a, it, I, can res, I can resonate with the hard mental shift that comes with trying to price things in sats because there's so much uncertainty and we're just not used to it. Like our entire lived experience has been pricing things in dollars. And so I'm excited to start to like view things in sats and see how that changes. And that's why I mentioned Moscow time because it's getting me in yeah. the routine of thinking more in sats than yep. in fiat and it's a more global mindset it's really it's really cool yeah that's awesome you know i i think one thing that might be interesting um is you know we talked about game theory and maybe some thought experiments but one of the if, if you follow uh uh mempool.space those of you that that yep you know uh, if, if you're not there and, and you're involved anyway in bitcoin you should go out there and just kind of tootle around and kind of see what's going on because it that's that's really the heart and soul of what's happening at bitcoin it's like the ekg of it's like yeah it's a magical site to observe yeah and it, they, they did a great they do a great job with the ui and it's it's colorful and i i, I really i really applaud those guys and I've, I've donated some money to them i think they do a great job cool. but um the uh when you go through there one of the things you'll see is um fairly regularly you'll see Binance pool win a block and then plow a little deeper. And one of the things that I think you're seeing, I'm pretty sure you're seeing is that what they're doing is they're mining, not only be a miner, but they're mining with the anticipation of reducing fees. So what they can do is they can, they can place the transactions that they want processed into the mempool with no fee. Hmm. And as long as it's not time urgent, what they can do is let it sit there. If they're fortunate enough, now every time they go try to mine a block, they're going to include their stuff, right? And, and so if, if they're fortunate enough um, to win, they, they get their transactions done with no fees, if the mempool is very empty, there's a decent chance that one of the other miners is going to throw it into their block and mine it for them for free as well. And so um, the reason I point this out is if you think about, okay, what, it, what is the logical extension of that? It makes sense for anybody that has 
to materially do a lot of on-chain settlement to have a mining presence. So if you're PayPal, if, if you're MasterCard, if you're Bank of America, and we, there was some stuff in the FDIC, uh, announcement by the FDIC about um, US banks now being able to, to maybe hold Bitcoin and collateralize Bitcoin and some things like that. Um, but you're gonna have all these different organizations that now have a vested interest in mining and they may have mining operations of their own. They may reach out to other miners and want to buy space in the mining or, 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 or align with mining pools. And, you know, so, so there's some very interesting things that I think will happen. Yeah. Yeah. I think when they have skin in the game, they are automatically incentivized to make sure mining is able to continue, right? Like it's a deeper level of involvement in Bitcoin and if, if, if we don't navigate this correctly, um, it becomes a risk to all of us. And I think this whole notion that we all have skin in the game means that we have this balanced perspective to, to all be heavily vested in, in Bitcoin succeeding. Um, and, 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 you know, like if there, I think fee optimization is going to happen. It's just how it happens. But I think at a certain point, people are going to realize that there is a next phase that we have to go into in terms of how we view this to make sure that network protection remains indefinitely because that's kind of the, the goal. We're all one team, right? We all, we all can have our individual game theories based on yeah. what slot we fit into in the team. But at the end of the day, the, the, the full Bitcoin team ends up having to unite uh, if there's something that is coming uh, up the pipeline. And I think yeah. uh, I'm very, regardless of what happens, I'm extremely excited to see. I, I, have, I have so much faith in this because it's just, it seems to just, survive every single adversary, every single challenge that comes its way, not only does it survive it, it actually comes out stronger and more resilient on the other side. And like, there's not many things that you can say that about. Definitely not humans all the time. Um, very, very yeah. few. I'll yeah. tell you, so an interesting thing is I, as, as I've said before, I came from the personal computer industry and um, as, as a chief technology officer at, at Gateway, I would find myself in different situations with um, people in similar positions at HP or Dell or Compaq or Toshiba or whatever over time. And whenever I would get in those situations, the conversations were very guarded. They were, um, you know, I, I really, they would kind of basically go, I'm going to ask you a question. Um, I'll ask my compatriot a question. They won't really answer me, give me any information, but then ask me one back. And, you know, it's this game of trying to catch each other in some, um, uh, some slip where we give some competitive information. Okay. In the Bitcoin mining world, just in the last couple months, I mean, I've, I've been on, podcasts with um, people from Great American Mining, from Compass Mining. I've had um, numerous conversations with people from people like at Foundry, at, um, at, at Galaxy Digital, at I mean, people that traditionally, what I'm saying is these are people that traditionally would be considered in any other industry, my competitors, but we exchange information and I, I, I'm, there's, there's very little about my company and my philosophy I won't share with them 
and at least as far as I can tell, there's very little they wouldn't tell me. And we, we kind of help each other. Hey, you're like um, a family. Yeah. And, and so it's a very strange, but, but neat situation that I'm not aware of ever occurring. Um, Cause pick any other industry and, you know, in pharma in telecommunications and computing yep. and you, you throw executives from different companies in the room and you know, it's, it's all guarded conversations. And, right. and this is the exact opposite. Like, Hey, I'm buying these miners and I'm doing this on this date, or I'm paying this much for this energy, or yeah. have you thought of doing this? Have you looked at this pool? Well, you know, it's great. It's, 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 it's so refreshing. It's almost like two different, you know, you have that, you have either a scarcity mindset, which is really dominated by fear. Um, and the scarcity mindset is like, put a bunch of executives from different tech companies. There's a scarce amount of customers. They're all fighting for them. Right. And then you have the abundance mindset, which is really all love. And it's that there's enough to go around. And my interest is for us all to succeed because there's enough for everyone. And it sounds like, you know, the Bitcoin community is really an abundance minded community. Um, and yeah, it is very unique. And even just the fact that you um, were willing to spend 90 minutes of your time, which, you know, like you're the CEO of a mining company, your time is precious. And the fact that you did this and came on today to chat is like just a subset of the abundance mindset. Cause I'm very grateful. I'm sure everyone listening to this is very grateful. And, uh, I think that'll be a good place to wrap it up, Bob. And I, I thank you for your time. I look forward to, you know, I'm always good game for a good Bitcoin conversation. doesn't always have to be, I wanted to get you on for hash power because I wanted uh, barefoot mining to be the first mining company that I spoke to because um, I, I just love the conversation we had, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago. So thank you everyone for listening. Uh, we hope you'll stop by the Bitcoin store next time for another episode of hash power. When we get other mining companies on, if you enjoyed the content, you can support the project by going to bitcoinstore.com, sending some SaaS to the QR code on the homepage there. We are not, we're choosing not to make any income from any sponsors or anything, because I think this is actually the best way to do um, a content platform that's objective. And uh, yeah, Bob, thank you for being here. Thanks everyone for listening and uh, ciao for now.